0: Well, it's a blessing to be here with you all this morning on this beautiful Lord's Day that God's given to us, and uh, to sing these praises to God. And I pray that you'll uh, you'll enjoy the fellowship here this morning. And it's time now for us to open the Bible together. Uh, we finished our study of Philippians last Sunday. I was sorry to see that book go, as I've said, but uh, we're going to begin a study of Nehemiah. But I'm going to wait until after Easter because I'm going to be gone to Israel a couple of weeks, and then we have Palm Sunday and Easter. And so it'd kind of start the book, it'd kind of be really chopped up. So uh, the next five weeks, what I want to do is uh, to just to look at some different texts and topics uh, that I pray that uh, the Lord will, will bless you from as He's blessed and encouraged me in my life. And so this morning, I want us to, to open our Bibles uh, to Psalm 139. So if you'll take your Bible, I hope you bring your Bible with you every week and uh, you'll open up to Psalm 139. I've been here at at the church 26 years and never preached before on this um, exquisite psalm, Psalm 139. I can't believe I've never done that, but we're we're going to take care of that problem here this morning. Uh, This is a psalm of David. It's often called uh, the crown of the psalms. And uh, due to the length of this psalm, I won't read it this morning as as a whole at the beginning of the message, but we'll read it as we make our way through it together. So uh, turn it to Psalm 139. Uh, one of my favorite uh, Christians from the past is Amy Carmichael. Um, if you've ever read any of her poems, they're just—they're uh, very rich and they're profound. And uh, her, her life should be uh, uh, really an example to all of us. Uh, she grew up in Ireland in a wealthy family. Uh, she surrendered her life to God and to missions, and uh, she traveled to India, where she spent 55 years of her life. And when she got to India, she never returned home. She was there for 55 years. Her focus. Uh, of her ministry centered on rescuing and reclaiming young girls who were being uh, forced into prostitution by the local uh, priests at the Hindu temples. Uh, she started an orphanage It uh, was for girls. Later on, it was even opened up to boys and grew incredibly. Uh, but later in her life, Amy Carmichael suffered a, a tragic, a terrible fall. And uh, for the last 20 years of her life, she was bedridden. And uh, from her bed, she spent those final 20 years of her life praying and counseling and witnessing to many people. One of the things I think is most beautiful about her life is those 20 years she spent bedridden, she had two plaques above her bed, and they each just contained two words. One of them said, fear not, and the other one said, I know. And it was a daily reminder to Amy Carmichael that she need not fear anything that could come her way because God knew everything about her. God was saying to her every day, fear not, and I know. In other words, if God knows everything about her life or circumstances, what she's going through, there's no need for her to fear. And it was a daily reminder to her and everyone who came to see her. And there's no greater comfort, I think, for an anxious, troubled, fearful heart than the fact that God knows us. It's our knowledge of his knowledge of us that should give us the greatest comfort in life. Knowing that God knows all about us is all we need to know, I think, when we face the trials and the troubles of life that can swirl around us and pile up. So God wants you to know that he knows you. Uh, To know that we're known by God, I think, is in many ways the best thing that we can know. J.I. Packer has a classic book called Knowing God. Um, Some of you have read that. If you've not read it, I'd recommend it. It's a great book. But in that book about knowing God, um, uh, J.I. Packer says there's something better than even knowing God. And he says this, what matters supremely is not in the last analysis, the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it, the fact that God knows me. I'm graven on the palms of his hands. I'm never out of his mind. Now, that's a great truth, the truth that God knows me. And that's the message of Psalm 139, the truth that you and I are never uh, beyond uh, out, out of the mind of God and never beyond the reach uh, of God's love. Now, I don't know about you, but in one sense when I think about how well God knows me, that's kind of a scary thought in some ways. It should be for all of us. I mean, it's it's frightening to think that there's someone that knows everything about me. But in this Psalm here, it's not presented to frighten us, but It's presented to encourage us. In other words, the psalmist here believes it's wonderful and marvelous, that God knows everything about him. So the focus of this psalm is the encouragement that comes from God's knowledge of us. A a great thought, really, that kind of could tie this psalm together in many ways, and this isn't original with me, I've, I've heard several people say this, and that is, the one who knows us the best loves us the most. The one that knows us the best loves us the most. Now, let's briefly think about the background of this psalm. It, it says here that it's a psalm of David. We don't know the specific uh, background behind this, what specific occasion, but it's a kind of a black backdrop for this psalm. Notice down in verse 19. Oh, that thou wouldst slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed. For they speak against thee wickedly, and thine enemies take thy name in vain. I do, uh, do I not hate those who hate thee, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against thee? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies." Now, again, we don't know the specific occasion, but David's under pressure. He's facing adversity and attack and accusation from enemies. And in this time of trouble, David comforts himself in the knowledge of God's knowledge of him. So David's ultimate comfort is that God knows him, and it should be our comfort as well in life. Now, to flesh this out or kind of unfold this, I've got three points this morning. There's a, a lot of ways to, to dissect this psalm, but I want us to look at three points. God knows you personally, God knows you physically, and God knows you prophetically. We're going to spend most of our time on those first two points. The first thing here is that God knows you and He knows me personally. Look at verse 1. O Lord, Thou hast searched me and known me. Thou dost know when I sit, up, when, when I sit down and when I rise up. Thou dost understand my thoughts from afar. Thou dost scrutinize my path and my lying down, and art intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, thou dost know it all. Thou hast enclosed me behind and before, and laid uh, thy hands upon me. Such wonderful knowledge, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, it's too high I cannot attain to it. Now in these six verses of this psalm, we find 13 personal pronouns. Look at this psalm. You've known me. You've searched me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up, you know my thoughts. You scrutinize my path, my lying down. So the first thing we see about this psalm is it's, it's personal. It's that God knows us personally and he's personally interested in our lives. I mean, it starts out here, O Lord, literally, it's O Yahweh. That's the one we sung about this morning, the, the great I am. O Yahweh, thou hast searched me and known me. Uh, the word searched here means to, 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 can mean to dig for something. It was even used of digging for, for precious stones. And he says, you've known me. And that word know is used seven times in the psalm. And what we see as we go through these first verses is God knows us inside and out. Notice in verse 2, you know when I sit down and when I rise up. In other words, God knows what we do. There's nothing more mundane in life than sitting down and rising up. We all do it many times a day. And I think he's pointing to the simplest, most routine, most mundane thing of life. And he's saying even when you sit down and when you stand up, God knows about that. If he knows about that, something that's that routine and mundane, then God knows every move we make might be good sometime this week when you sit down and when you rise up to just think of the fact that God knows that. God knows I just sat down. God knows I got up. God knows what we think. Notice the end of verse 2. Thou dost understand my thought from afar. Uh, Afar can mean distance or time. He knows my thoughts from afar. God knows what we think. He knows what we think even before we think it. Notice in verse 3. Thou dost scrutinize my path and my lying down. God knows where we go. The word scrutinized there was used of winnowing grain. God sifts our life, and God knows our path. He knows where we go. He knows uh, what we do. Down in verse 4, God knows what we say. In fact, he, he knows what we say before we even say it. Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, thou dost know it all. God knows what we're thinking and what we're going to say even before we form the words in our mind. We're never out of the mind of God. In fact, God sees you sitting there right now this morning, right right now this morning, and God knows what you're thinking. He knows if you're listening to me or not, right? I don't know that, but He does. God's listening to every word that I'm saying. God is sifting and evaluating everything that we say about Him. God's knowledge of us is infinite, but here's what I love in this psalm. God's knowledge of us is not just infinite, but it's intimate and it's individual. God knows me. And look at verse 5. You've enclosed me behind and before. God, you're in front of me and behind me. The word used here, enclosed, was used in that day of besieging a city, when an army would come and, and lay siege to a city and surround it. And he's saying here, God, you've surrounded me. Your knowledge has hemmed me in. You've enveloped me in your knowledge of me. God, you know everything about me. There are not any gaps in God's knowledge of you and me. God's knowledge is exhaustive. I mean, think about this. God knows you better than you know yourself. Hebrews 4.13, the writer says this, There is no creature hidden from his sight. All things are naked and open to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. We have to do with God. All things are naked and open to his eyes. There's nothing hidden from his sight. Now, the theological term for this, most of you know this, is the word omniscient. We call them the omnis of God. The word omni means all. Omniscient means God knows everything. Omnipresent means God is everywhere. Omnipotent means God is all-powerful. But it means here that God is all-knowing. God never learns anything. God never discovers anything. God never seeks out information from somewhere. God knows everything, but God also knows you and He knows me individually and intimately. And one of the things that encourages me in this is I'm not just some number or some nobody to God. And it's easy to think with 7 billion people in the world that I'm just some number or some nobody to God. But the psalmist here tells us that God knows us. In fact, it's, it's so precise, God's knowledge of us. Matthew 10, 30, Jesus says the very hairs of your head are numbered. The average uh, head has 100,000 hairs on it, and God knows that. Now, some of us, that number is changing often, and it may be easier to count uh, some heads of hair than others. But one person I read this week said this, and this is beautiful. He said, God knows the number of hairs on your head, not because he counts them. He knows them. In other words, God doesn't have to come and count them to know them. God just knows. God knows everything. He knows everything instantly and intuitively and infinitely. One person I read this week said, God is the only one who attends the funeral of a sparrow. Because Jesus says, you know, not a sparrow falls to the ground without my father. God knows everything. If God knows when the sparrow falls to the ground, God knows me and he loves me and he sees me. God thinks about you and he thinks about me even when we're not thinking about him. He constantly thinks about us. So God knows us personally. And this blows David's mind. Look at verse 6. He says, "Um, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high, I cannot attain to it. Actually, in this sentence, in Hebrew, the word wonderful is emphatic. Wonderful, such knowledge is for me. It's too high, I cannot attain to it. And it's not so much what David thinks about God here is is wonderful that stirs him, but it's the fact that God thinks about him and that God knows him. So God knows us. He knows each of us personally. Now, God also knows us physically physically. I like verse six. He says, "Where can I go from Thy Spirit? Or where can I flee from Thy presence?" It may be that the psalmist is saying, "If God knows so much about me, maybe the best." But the point here is, all escape routes are futile. And we find here in these verses what we call the omnipresence of God. That is, that God is everywhere. God is inescapable. There's no place God can go because He's already there. You ever thought about that? God never visits anywhere. Wherever you and I go, God is already there. He's there. In verse 7, he's saying here, you can't go to a place where God is not. You can't be where God is not. Where can I go from thy spirit? Where can I flee from thy presence? And in verse 8 here, he gives what's called, and it's about that word. I was glad somebody was listening to that, a merism. It's M-E-R-I-S-M. A merism is where you state the polar opposites of something and include everything in between. Like we'd say about somebody, you know, uh, he was dirty from head to toe. That's a merism. You're stating the opposite ends, includes everything in between. And what he's saying here is, if I go to heaven, God, you're there. That's the highest place if I make my bed in Sheol, the lowest place, the underworld, behold, you are there. And of course, it includes everything in between. God fills every corner and crevice of the universe. And he says in verse 9, if I could take the wings of the dawn, probably that speaks of the rays of the sun as they begin to shine. Probably speaks of what we would say today is the speed of light. He's saying here, if we could fly at the speed of light, We could never escape uh, God's presence. We live under the watchful eye of God. No matter how far you go out into space, God is there. Some of you here uh, may be old enough to remember this. Others, I'm sure, have heard of it. Uh, Yuri Gagarin was the uh, first man in space. He was a a major Yuri Gagarin was a Russian cosmonaut. 1961, he was the first person in space. And when he came back, a, a quote is attributed to him that he said, When I got into space, I looked and looked and looked everywhere, and I didn't see God. Now, some have said that Gagarin didn't actually say that, that Nikita Khrushchev, who was the Russian leader at the time, said that and attributed that to uh, Gagarin. It was later attributed to Gagarin because, of course, Khrushchev was an atheist and he wanted to emphasize the idea that Gagarin went out in space and he looked and looked and God wasn't anywhere to be found. Well either way whichever one of them said it it's interesting when Billy Graham's wife Ruth heard that statement she said this Gagarin looked in the wrong place. If he'd stepped outside the spaceship without his spacesuit he would have seen God very quickly. <laughs> I like that. God was there, but they just uh, they couldn't see him. And he says here in verse Uh, verse uh, 10. If I go to the remotest part of the sea, even there thy hand will lead me and thy right hand will lay hold of me. He's saying God is so near to us, it's like his hand is on us, guiding us and leading us. Then he says in verse 11, if I say surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to thee. And the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to thee. No matter where we go into the deepest, darkest place, since says God's there. God sees us there. I'm never left alone. I'm never unnoticed by God. And neither are you. God is always with me. His eyes always upon me. Um, he knows who we are. In his uh, commentary on Psalms, John Phillips says it like this, death can't hide us from God, distance can't hide us from God, darkness cannot hide us from God. And we see that here. You go to Sheol, to death, it can't hide us from God. Distance, he, he, he knows from afar, and darkness cannot hide us from God. Now, the mention here of darkness, the last thing he says in verse 12, darkness and light are alike to thee. When David's thinking here of the darkness, his mind goes now to the mother's womb, to the darkness of the mother's womb, and the fact that God knows us physically even from the beginning and created us. He says in verse 13, thou didst form my inward parts. Some take this to be even the the emotional part of us, the soul, the spirit. God creates uh, the inward parts. And he says at the end of the verse, thou didst weave me, in my mother's womb. And most of you know these are terms from a like a seamstress or knitting, that God knit me together uh, like a, a seamstress in, in my mother's womb, the, the cells and the joints and the ligaments and the muscles and the organs. And here we are led in on this, this masterful, mysterious work of God in creating uh, creatures in his image. In fact, in verse 15, he says, my frame was not hidden from thee. Probably many people believe that refers to the skeleton, the the frame uh, was not hidden. When I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. That word skillful there, skillfully wrought, takes what you have in verse 13 a step further. Verse 13 is is weaving and all of that, but, but here this refers to the complex patterns and colors of an embroiderer. It's not just the weaving and the, the stitching together, but the patterns and the colors of an embroider. In fact, this word is used elsewhere in the Old Testament of embroidery, of like of a curtain or something. You skillfully wrought me in uh, the depths of the earth. And then in verse 16, Thy, thine eyes have seen my unformed substance. This word was used later for an embryo. That God saw my unformed substance. So in the darkness of our mother's womb, it's saying here that God knit us together. And I think this answers the question for us biblically, when does life begin? Begins at the beginning of God's work, which is at that moment of conception. Now, this is not the main point of the sermon this morning, but these verses obviously speak soberly to the horror of abortion in our culture which is the taking of a life, and you can't read these verses and escape that. This past Monday was National Sanctity of Human Life Day. It was proclaimed by uh, President Trump for January the 22nd, which was the 45th anniversary of Roe versus Wade, and whatever else we may not like about some of of President Trump's antics, he's been the strongest pro-life president we've had in decades, and for that I'm deeply grateful. So this is a fitting psalm for this Sunday, this week, Uh, There are uh, about uh, one million abortions a year still uh, taking place in America. Um, It's nothing short of a national tragedy. I mean, I can't say it strongly enough. It's a scourge upon our land and upon our nation. I hope we all know that. I was uh, reading Warren Wiersbe's commentary this week on Psalms, and uh, Wiersbe, he's certainly no fanatic a great Bible teacher, but he, he said something that struck me. I mean, he said it in as pithy and powerful a way I've ever seen it stated before. He said this, abortion turns a, turns a womb into a tomb. I mean, you can't say it any more clearly than that and any more tragically really than that. And again, I don't want to be too graphic this morning, but, but think about this for a moment. What an abortionist does is they invade the sanctum of a mother's womb where God is doing a special and a sacred work, and they snuff out and they take a life. And all I can say when we think about that in our country is God have mercy on us. Now, I know when I speak to a group this size, there's some here who have experienced this tragedy themselves, Uh, women here, maybe a man with a girlfriend or a fiance or even a wife. She encouraged them to, to have an abortion look, I want to say this, look, there's, there, there's forgiveness for any sin that we commit under the blood of Jesus Christ. So don't despair this morning. I'm saying these things, and I want to say them strongly, but I don't want to lead anyone here um, who's, who's been part of this sin to leave here this morning in despair. The blood of Jesus Christ uh, covers all of our sin. But You think of the way David describes this here this morning, and think of how much more we know about conception and about genes and DNA and all these things than David knew. There's a great book I read years ago. I I reread parts of it this week. I would encourage you to get a copy if you've never seen this book. It's called More Than Meets the Eye by Dr. Richard Swenson, a believer. It's filled with more information about the human body than you'll ever be able to take in. More Than Meets the Eye, Dr. Richard Swenson. Let me just read a few things he said that struck me. He said the human body contains 10 to the 28th power atoms, so one followed by 28 zeros. The universe itself contains only 10 to the 20th power stars. So he says, in light of such comparisons, I teach young doctors the human body is a million times more complex than the universe. Think about that. All of these tens of trillions of cells began very inauspiciously as one single, tiny, minuscule, microscopic, almost invisible speck, the fertilized egg. Within this first tiny cell, measuring mere microns, is the blueprint for building an entire human body with a complexity that's incomprehensible. 30 hours after fertilization, this single, precocious cell undergoes its first division. Sometime within the first couple of weeks, in addition to dividing, And dividing, the cells also begin to differentiate. The secret of this differentiation, which will eventually result in over 200, will eventually result in over 200 different kinds of tissue and organ cells. This somehow is all mysteriously locked up in the DNA. Then he goes into all the biochemical complexity, but I found this fascinating. If you took all the DNA just out of one single cell in your body and stretched it out, it'd be five feet long. And if you took all the DNA from all the cells in your body stretched them end to end. It'd reach 10 billion miles. I mean, the, you know, the, the weight of it and the, the width of it would be nothing. But just a couple of other things that struck me. He says the, about the eye, he says, The retina of the eye contains 100 million rods and cones that take continuous pictures under light conditions that can vary by a factor of 10 billion. Individual retinal photoelectric cells are so sensitive, they can be triggered by one billion billionth the amount of light emitted by a flashlight. In one third of a second, the retina solves the equivalent of nonlinear differential equations that would take a supercomputer 100 years to solve. Now, I don't even know what a nonlinear differential equation is, but <laughs> sounds complicated. But in a third of a second, it can solve the equivalent of those that a a supercomputer take 100 years to solve. And then just about the ear, just one sentence says, the ear has a million moving parts, can vibrate 20,000 times per second, can hear sounds over a range of intensity that varies by a trillion, and can distinguish among a thousand different pitches. And on and on and on we could go, and he does in his book, but I just say this because no wonder in verse 14 David says we give thanks to thee for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made wonderful are thy works and my soul knows it very well. Eugene Peterson said this years ago I love this he said in the presence of a birth we don't calculate we marvel you know, when your baby's born, your child or your grandchild, you don't sit around calculating up all this stuff, all these facts I read. In the presence of a birth, you don't calculate, you marvel. And every one of us do. When a child is born, we marvel at what God has done. Look, God knows all of us personally. He knows us physically. But just really briefly, in verse 16, God knows us prophetically. Look what he says at the end of verse 16. In thy book they were written of me, all the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. So the one who formed us in our mother's womb never loses sight of us throughout our entire life. God sees us every day just as he saw us when he was forming us. And God, God only not only knows our past and our present, God knows our future. I mean, one translation has of this verse all of our days have been written down in God's book and planned before a single one of them began. God knows my birth date, He knows my death date, and God knows everything in between. God knows us prophetically. He knows our life, our future, everything about us. So none of us need to fear tomorrow because God is already there. God knows us prophetically. Now let me stop there in this psalm, and I want to make some application this morning. Just four simple lessons uh, for us to think through together. The first one is this. As we read this psalm, we ought to be amazed I mean, that's David's response. Look at verse 6. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I can't attain to it. Verse 14, I'll give thanks to thee for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are thy works. My soul knows it very well. Down in verse 17, how precious are thy thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. God's thoughts of you and me. And then I love this. When I awake, I'm still with thee. You go to sleep at night and you wonder if God's changed or he's gone away and says, I'll wake up, you're still there with me, God's presence with us. Look, this is the God we worship. He's omniscient, he's omnipresent, he's omnipotent. We can't get our minds around this, but we ought to be amazed and overwhelmed by it, by God's reach into our lives and God's power in our lives. God has planned my days and David can't take it in. One other quote by Warren Wiersbe, he says this, he says, Our modern-day loss of wonder has made us shallow and hollow. And I fear that for a lot of younger people today who are just so caught up with so many of the the machines and the things of life that they've lost the wonder, and it can make us shallow and hollow in life. Uh, Gypsy Smith was a great evangelist years ago, and when he was later in his life, someone asked him the secret to his staying in there and persevering and, and his love for the Lord. And he made this statement. He said, the secret to my life is I never lost the wonder. And that'd be a great thing for us to say someday when we're 80 or 90 or 95 years old about our lives, about who God is and what he's done for us and his knowledge of us, that we'd never lose uh, the wonder. Because our God is the Psalm of 139. He's the God who knows everything and who is everywhere. And we ought to be amazed by this. The second thing I would say is be yourself. You need to accept who you are. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. You're handcrafted by God. And if God knit you together, then you need to accept yourself. Accept for yourself for who God made you to be. Now, I always have to pause here and make this statement that this doesn't include sinful choices you may make. You can't say, well, I, you know, I just go around and I'm angry and just ticked off all the time. That's just the way God made me. No, I'm not talking about the sinful choices that people make. What I'm talking about here is accepting our gifts and our physical traits and our abilities and and talents and those things. We look at the, the sinful propensities in our life. You could say in some ways, God didn't make us that way. Adam did. It's through Adam's sin that we have these sinful choices and propensities in life. But look, don't spin your wheels in life wondering all the time, why didn't God make me some other way? Now, people will say, why didn't God make me thinner? Well, He did. (laughs) We were all thin. At one time, we were younger, right? Why didn't God make me thinner? People say, why didn't God make me taller? A lot of young boys and young men, why didn't God make me more athletic? Why didn't God make me smarter? Why didn't God make me better looking? Why didn't God make me uh, have a better personality? On and on and on we could go. But you have to come to a place in life when you, where you accept yourself and you say, I'm one of a kind and I have great worth and value because I'm made in the image of God. And I think the sooner that you can do that in your life, the better off you're going to be. You have great worth and value. It's an old saying that's been around a long time. It's not very good grammar, but you know, God don't make no junk. And I like that. Because if you spend your life trying to be something or someone God never intended you to be, you're just going to waste your life. So be yourself. Be who God created you to be. The third thing I would say is be encouraged. I hope this will encourage you this morning. God knows everything about you and he still loves you. Isn't that encouraging? It <laughs> ought to be. God knows all your sins. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your fears. God knows your failures. God is acquainted with all of your ways and your life. But God Uh, Knows you and loves you. It's what I said earlier. The one who knows you the best loves you the most. I gave that quote earlier by J.I. Packer, but let me read a little bit more of it, a little further down. This is really good. He says, What matters supremely is not, in the last analysis, the fact that I know God, but the larger fact that underlies it, the fact that God knows me. I'm graven on the palms of his hands. I'm never out of his mind. All my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. I know him because he first knew me and continues to know me. He knows me as a friend, one who loves me. And there is no moment when his eye is off me or his attention distracted from me and no moment, therefore, when his care falters. This is momentous knowledge. There's unspeakable comfort in knowing that God is constantly taking knowledge of me in love and watching over me for my good. And then listen to this. This is great. There's tremendous relief in knowing that his love to me is utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me. So no discovery can disillusion God about me in the way I'm so often disillusioned about myself and quench his determination to bless me. What he's saying here is God is utterly realistic. There's nothing God will ever find out about you that will disillusion God about you. That God's going to someday say, Man, I wouldn't have chosen that person or saved him if I'd have known this about him. God will never, ever be disillusioned about you or about me because he knows everything about us. God's love is utterly realistic. It's based on his prior knowledge of everything about you. And I hope that's an encouragement to you because God knows and sees all the most twisted things. sees more corruption in me than I even see in myself. And yet the Bible says that he loves me. God knew what he was getting when he got us, didn't he? He knew what he was getting when he saved us. So the psalmist finds great encouragement in the fact that God knows him. And we should find great encouragement in that as well. Karl Barth, the great theologian, someone asked him one time the greatest thought that he'd ever heard, the greatest thought that ever entered his mind. The great theologian paused for a moment and said, the greatest thoughts ever entered my mind is Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. There's really no greater thought than that. Jesus loves us in spite of knowing everything about us. And then the final point I would see here this morning of application is we need to be honest with God and we need to be open and transparent with God. Since I can't hide anything from God, I need to be open. Look at verse 23. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me. Know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any hurtful way in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. That word search me is the very same Hebrew word in verse 1 where he's saying, God, you have searched me. And since he knows all this now, he just opens himself up to God and says, God, you search me. What it's saying here to us, I think, this morning is, don't play games with God. It's so easy for us to play games with God and think somehow we're hiding something from God and something something God doesn't know about. We all used to play that game with our, our kids, those of you that have younger children, or maybe you have grandchildren now, or maybe if you're younger, maybe your parents did this with you. But we all play hide-and-seek in the house on some cold day, and uh, the little kids go off, and you, know, you hide your eyes, and they go off and hide. and You know, you know everywhere they're going to hide. There's not that many places in the house, right? I mean, it's easy to find them. Sometimes their feet are sticking out from where they're hiding. I mean, it's easy to find them. And sometimes you go find them and kind of have fun, but other times you act like you can't see them and don't know where they are. But, you know, sometimes I think that's the way we are with God. We think sometime we're going to go play some hide and seek with God and find some place where God doesn't know us. But what I would say this morning to you and to myself, God sees us and God searches us, so don't try to hide. Don't play hide and seek with God. Be honest with yourself because God knows everything about you already. So open your heart and your life to Him. And be open and be transparent and be humble before this... Uh, all knowing, all seeing God. Now, it may be that you're here this morning and you've never opened your heart and your life to God for the very first time. And if you haven't done that, then I want to give you the opportunity this morning to do that. This God who knows you so well came in the person of the Son of God and died on the cross in your place for all of your sins. And He wants you to come this morning and open your heart to Him and say, God, search me. I know I'm a sinner. And I believe in Jesus and I trust in Him that He's the Savior that I need. You showed your love for me in such a way that Jesus came and died in my place and paid the price for me. So if you've never opened your heart to the Lord for the very first time, may you do that this morning now as we pray. Let's pray together. Father, we do come before you now this morning. We pray if there's anyone here who's never opened their heart to you for the very first time and said, search me, O God, and know my heart and try me. Know my anxious thoughts, see if there' be any wicked way in me, but they'd do that now. They'd open their heart to you and they'd receive the only one who can wash away their sins, the Lord Jesus, and trust in Him. And Father, for those of us who know you, I, I thank you, O oh God, that we can know you, but for the even greater underlying truth, O oh God, that you know us. And Father, I pray that each one of us here today would be amazed and we'd be encouraged that there's nothing about us that can ever disillusion you. Oh, God, that we'd open our hearts and lives to you. Father, I pray for our country today. Father, we're so sorry and so saddened by what's happened in our country now over these last decades with abortion. We pray that you'd work in our local leaders and those in our state and those in our government. Father, just call call them back to sanity. So the scourge can be removed, Father, from our land. Have mercy on us, we pray. Well, Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace to each one of us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's stand for the benediction as we're dismissed. I want to thank you, especially if you're a guest or a visitor, for being here with us today. If you've got these doors around the corner, there's a welcome center there. Some folks would love to greet you. I also want to remind everyone there's a business meeting this Wednesday night in our, in our uh, main sanctuary at uh, 6.30. So there'll be a financial report and uh, some information about our upcoming Greater Things uh, campaign, our building campaign, elder report, some other things. So just a good way to connect and know what's going on in the church. So that'll be at 6.30 on uh, Wednesday evening. Well, let's bow our heads now for the benediction as we leave here with the Lord's blessing. Father, we come to you now this morning, all of us, we open our hearts to you, and we we'd pray these words, Father, as our closing prayer and benediction to you this morning. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me. And Lead me into the everlasting way. All God's peace.